everybody. Welcome to Chant by Chance. This is a resource for young creators as we, together, learn to navigate the professional field, making the most of our time and potential. Today, I am honored to bring you a knowledgeable and exciting guest in Dr. Richard Gassaway. He entered the fire service in 1979 and has served as a firefighter, paramedic, lieutenant, captain, assistant chief, and fire chief in six agencies across the country. Following that 30-year career, Chief Gassaway founded Situational Awareness Matters. It's a consulting and teaching organization designed to improve the way that individuals and teams make decisions in stressful environments. Dr. Gassaway earned his PhD from Capella University, having focused his research on cognitive neuroscience and human factor analysis. Dr. Gassaway has contributed to over 450 books and articles on leadership and safety. Six of those books are entirely his own and spoken at more than 2,200 program and keynote addresses all across the U.S., to the U.K., to Hong Kong, and Australia. He hosts the SA Matters radio podcast. There are 150 consecutive weekly episodes at this point and 200,000 downloads. Before jumping straight in, I want to offer a sincere thanks for those of you who continue to support Chance by Chance. If you haven't already, visit my website, chancebychance.com, and subscribe to the newsletter at the bottom of the homepage. You'll receive all new episodes and more directly to your inbox. Big thanks to Josh Johnson for providing the opening track to this podcast. And without further ado, everyone, I give you Dr. Richard Gassaway. Dr. Gassaway, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's um, it's a real honor. I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, thank you for sitting down with me. My father referred me to you. In your words, how how do you know my dad? Well, I've known you, Dad, for a number of years uh, because we both serve as firefighters. And I served in the community that was right next to where he worked. And as you work in that space, there's an opportunity to come together and do training and attend meetings and get to know each other. And over the course of time, I got to know him. And then he had me in to do some training for the uh, firefighters that work for him. And we just um, developed a professional relationship and then what I would say advanced into just a friendship after that. Yeah. Wow. You have your own business. It's called Situational Awareness Matters. Can you give me an overview of that and perhaps for the listeners what situational awareness means? Yeah, sure. Let's first start with what it means. A lot of the people that I work with are people who make high-risk, high-consequence decisions in time-compressed environments with changing conditions. That's a broad spectrum of potential clients for me. It's industry, it's utilities, it's petroleum, it's public safety, medical, aviation. Anybody who works in those environments who have to quickly assess situations and then use those quick assessments to be the foundation of how they make good decisions. But there's usually not a lot of time for lengthy assessments of the situation because the conditions are changing so rapidly and the consequences so soon to occur that they have to do this quick assessment like you know tying back to what your, your dad does firefighters arrive on the scene of a fire on the fire truck and they have to quickly assess what the problem is and then what solution are they going to be able to apply to try to save saveable lives or save saveable property and keep the firefighters safe and that's all 
decisions that usually are made in anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. Wow. You know, they don't, they don't have a lot of time to form a little committee and, and try to get some reports and, and, and do some research on it. It's just, it's happening too fast. So I work with people who are on the sharp end of those very high consequence decisions. The biggest part of my entire adult lifehood was in that public safety space. And then in 2004, I went back to school and got a PhD and did research in the neuroscience of high-risk decision-making. And I started to learn some things and connect some things together that better explained from the neuroscience perspective how I was able to do my high-risk decision-making or make mistakes in high-risk decision-making. And then I tied that back to firefighter line of duty deaths that I evaluated to try to see where the situational awareness broke down and then how that impacted the decision which then led to that tragic outcome and as the dots connected it all started to come clear and make total sense to me and I was able to see things that I couldn't see before for 25 years and then I took that and I started presenting it and lo and behold out there in the world was a whole audience of people who hadn't seen what I hadn't seen and when I bring that clarity to them as you just you just see them light up and they say to me things like I'll never look at the way I do my work the same way ever again and that's probably the greatest compliment that they can pay to me is that I was able to shift their mindset about how important that situational awareness development process is and then how that drives the decision making and for people who have weeks or months to make decisions maybe my topic isn't quite as appealing to them. I'm talking about the folks who in the moment get put into a situation that has a lot of stress and a lot of potential consequence for them and they they have to figure it out fast um, and get it right or there's going to be a consequence. That consequence could be physical injury. That consequence could be an environmental catastrophe. That consequence could be a loss of a company's reputation in the marketplace. There's a lot riding on getting it right in, in the moment. Yeah, high stakes. And it isn't just all about life and death, high stakes. You know, that's probably the, the highest of stakes, but there are other stakes as well. Mm. That is how the company got founded. I retired in 2009 after 30 years of service had earned the PhD and I started to create opportunities to share this message. The more I shared it, the more it created a, hey, I, I dare chance to call this a movement, but there's, there's a movement afoot of people that I've inspired to look at how they do things differently and apply these principles of how to use a process for situational awareness and a process for high-risk decision-making. Now, let's circle back and give you the definition. Situational awareness is a person's ability to perceive and understand what is happening in the environment around them in context as to how time is passing. So as time passes, conditions change. As conditions change, then that affects awareness. And then, in turn, being able to make accurate predictions of future events, hopefully, in time, to prevent a bad outcome. So there are three component parts to that. Perception, understanding, and prediction. And what I teach in my classes is the neurological process of how we quickly perceive and understand and predict. And just that component takes me two hours. And you would think, no, no, it's got to be much easier than that. If you want to peel the 
peel the cover back, you know, peel the skull back and look into the brain and see how does the brain do this? Hmm. How does the brain do this under stress? Which is very different than how the brain functions in a non-stressed environment. There's a lot to learn from that. That's why it took me five years and a PhD to be able to connect these dots and see these things truly in a way that I would have never seen. I'm 25 years into my career and I felt like I was brand new on the job. I mean, because the whole perspective shifted so much for me that I was I was dumbfounded. I felt like, where did I miss the classes where these things were being taught? Well, what I found out, they weren't being taught. And they're not being taught not only in public safety. They're not, they're not being taught in industry. They're not being taught in utilities. They're not being taught in petroleum. They're not being taught in uh, the military. I just literally came back from a consulting program for the Navy. And I would have thought when I went there that, you know, it's the Navy. They got it all figured out. And, uh, you know, and I went there and I did this, this um, really it was, it was uh, just a site visit, just to see how my message could fit into what they were doing at this facility. It all jumped out at me. I mean, it was like, oh my gosh, I see this and this and this and this. And then I brought them into a conference room and they said, well, what'd you think? And I said, well, here's what I saw. And they were just writing feverishly. <laughs> and I would have thought they would have already seen everything that I see. They work there every day. Yeah, how yeah. can they not see what I see, you know, and then I started kind of just throwing out ideas and, and recommendations and they're like taking notes and taking notes and well it ends up I'm probably going to end up going back there and conducting some training for the employees on this base to help them be safer. Obviously they're on a base, they're not making the you know split second military battleground type decisions but still a really high risk work environment with what they're doing on this facility, it's very inspiring for me to be able to help someone's light bulb come on and have them see what they couldn't see. I can't describe it, but when I see it happen, I know it's happened, I get inspired by their enthusiasm for what they're learning. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. I think that's what's so powerful about it is that once the lights turn on, it's there. You know, maybe you have to remind yourself from time to time, but and, you and, can't go back. No, and, and what uh, many of them say is, they're harsh on themselves. They'll say, why couldn't I see this before? And then I say, don't feel bad, because I didn't see it before either. You know, I was just as blinded by the things that were happening in front of me that I couldn't piece together and make sense out of as you are. I just now can explain it better because of the the research that I did and, and you know, and when it fell on the, on the clarity for me chance, it was almost like, you know, the, a bright light and music and it was just like, <laughs> I can't describe it, but it was, it was just like, oh my goodness, it just all, it's, it's just like everything just, just fell right into place and I went, and now I know, now I can explain it, now I understand it. So now I've taken it on to be my passion for the balance of what life I'll have remaining to share that message with others to create that different perspective. I'm fascinated by the decision to go back to school for a degree, right. for your PhD, because that seems as though it set you 
in motion in the, the way that you're traveling. How, did. how did you arrive at that decision after working in the, in the fire service for so long? If everything I said to this point was exciting and encouraging, what I'm about to say is probably going to be the biggest disappointment of our interview. <laughs> and, and that is that I was, uh, I was 25 years into my career and I had been the, the fire chief of two departments for about 18 years. It's very inspiring to be at that level because you're kind of like the lead of the organization. You know, you get to set the direction and such. But after a while, you start to wear down. And I was wearing down, namely from two perspectives, politics and personnel issues. And they, they wear on you. And this good lesson for you is you head into a track or an inspiration of leadership. Politics and personnel issues will be the least fun of the things that you do. So I was 25 years in my career and thinking, what am I going to do in my afterlife? What am I going to do in life after the fire service? Uh, when I reached 30 years, I decided I wanted to just kind of hang it up and go on and do something else. So I thought, I'll go teach at a college. And my inspiration to enroll in the PhD program was to get the golden ticket, the PhD, that would get me hired at a college. That was the motive. I had no idea when I started, which is it's a terrible lesson for young people, because young people are always told, you know, look into your future, get your plans, get it all laid out. And I had this big plan laid out, and I never ever went there. I never taught at a college. I never achieved the end result of which the, was the inspiration to get started, because when I, by the time I finished, the findings of that just took me in a completely different direction. I guess you could say that I'm still a teacher, but not at a college. I'm at a teacher in individual settings at different different agencies and companies and so, you know, it's the university of me, you know, out there teaching and sharing this. And, and I'm very inspired by that. I mean, I, I literally wake up in the morning and think, I get to do this today. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, what a feeling. Oh, it is. It, it, you know, for the whole time I worked in the fire service, I always told people it never felt like I had a job hmm. because I loved it too much to call it work or a job. And then I worried when I leave there, am I ever going to find anything that's going to give me as much enthusiasm and inspiration as that has for so long? And it did. Oh, man. It, that, that old hole filled in quickly, and I had this new thing that I was running with. And the more I shared, the more feedback I got, the more inspiration I got from people, the more excited I got about it. And it was just like, now I can't turn it off. I literally, you know, I've been doing this full time now for um, almost eight years. And there are times when I get so excited I can't even sleep at night wow. because I know tomorrow I get to have a, an audience that I'm going to get to share a message with and inspire them and change them. It's crazy good, but it's crazy nonetheless. Yeah. At the beginning of those eight years when you founded this company, I'm wanting to know what you were expecting to happen, uh, what you were looking to do with it, and how that has perhaps changed over time. Yeah. Um, well, at the beginning... You always, you know, anytime you're launching some endeavor, you might have grand ideas and grand plans, but there's always that little negative person standing on your shoulder saying, no one's going to hire you, no one wants to listen to you, no one cares what you think you know, no one's going to buy your book, no one's going to listen to your podcast show, you know, and it's so easy to have those voices of doubt just hold you back, handcuff you, just be very uninspiring, and I really struggled with how to plow through that negative self-talk that I had and just say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyhow. It, it might fail. I'm going to do it. 
start a podcast. It, maybe no one will ever listen to it. But I'm going to start one and share what I know to an audience on their iTunes account and they're driving to work or they're working out and they're going to stumble onto my show and maybe I'm going to inspire them to look at how they do their work just yeah. a little differently which make them a little safer. Or even just how to be a safer driver on the highway. You know, the Situation Awareness Lesson has such broad application and I just, for almost the first year, I podcast religiously every week. That's yeah. one thing I just do not miss an episode. You're going on if, 150 episodes, right? 100, yeah. If I have to stay up at night to get my episode ready to go out on Tuesday morning, I will stay up into the middle of the night to get it done. I'm that committed to making sure that those people who have chosen to follow me have their new episode on Tuesday morning. But anyhow, for the first year, the hosting company that I use has access to the uh, statistics. I would never go and look at the stats as to how many downloads the podcast was getting for the whole first year. Why is that? Because I was too afraid that nobody would be listening, mm -hmm. and then that would shut me down. And I would say, "Why? Why? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna stay up till uh, you know you're a young person, you probably stay up late. I'm an old person; I don't stay up that late. <laughs> but if you're gonna stay up till midnight or one o'clock in the morning, then make sure you have an episode to push out the following morning. And if you go and you look at your stats, and your stats say, "Well, last week's episode had 30 listeners," you're gonna think, "I'm doing this for 30 people to listen to me." So I just said to myself, "I'm gonna podcast every week." for 52 episodes and then I'm going to go see what the stats say hmm. is the results of the show. And I, I'm glad I did because those first 15, 20, 25, 30 episodes were pretty dismal as far as, <laughs> as far as, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't taking hold. And I would, and if I know if I'd have been looking at it when it wasn't taken hold, I would have suffered from that pod fade that they talk about. And I would have, well, maybe not this week. Maybe I'll put one up next week, and then next week will come. Oh, maybe I'll get it to the week after. And you see a lot of podcasters with this inconsistent and sporadic contribution of their passion topic because they don't think that you know it's worth the effort. And you know, it's a lot of effort to arrange your guests and to, to record it and to edit it and and to and to you know get it up on the hosting there, there's work behind that uh, after the first year you know I took a big swallow and I logged on and I looked at the stats and I went something's wrong because there isn't this many people listening to my podcast. I just know there isn't. But there was. I mean, there were that many downloads. So many downloads, you don't know exactly know who listens to it. Mm -hmm. But the number of downloads were ranging in the 1,000 downloads a month You know, by after that first year. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's 1,000 people that are, that are downloading my podcast each month? Wow, and that then gave me the inspiration to say, I'm I'm all in now. I'm rocking forward. And I mentioned my podcast when I'm teaching live events too, so that kind of inspires people to tune in. But I, I will tell you, there's still that little little voice of self doubt because, like, I, you know, recently I was at a program in uh, Texas, and it was all training people in the room. So these are all the people who are teaching other people, you know, how to be safe. And I probably had 200 people in the room, and I said, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Essay Matters radio podcast show? Raise your hand. And like two people out of 200. 
raised their hand. And there lays the little South Delt voice on my shoulder, right while I'm teaching, saying, see, nobody listens to you. Why are you doing this? You know? <laughs> but then I think I made a difference. I made a difference for those two who will then influence others. The others who didn't ever heard of it, they heard of it that day. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I picked a couple of my most inspirational episodes, my most listened to episodes, and I said, look, you need to swing back and listen to this episode way back number 17. I'm at 150 now, but go way back to number 17 because that episode will be like a gut punch for you to know that person's story. And it was somebody that I interviewed that was in a fire that two of his other firefighters died and he lived. Hmm. And he's got a story to tell. <clears throat> that story is on situation awareness, decision making, things that happened that night at that fire, how it impacted him, how it inspired the rest of his career. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to young people in terms of overcoming that self-doubt or silencing that little devil on your shoulder yeah so what i would say is just punch it in the throat <laughs> and uh, <laughs> john acuff wrote a book called start the subtitle to the book is punch fear in the face hmm. you know so i'm going to yeah. borrow that and say punch in the throat and bar and give the credit back to john acuff everybody experiences some form of self doubt of their worth in the world does what we do really make a difference? When I was serving as a firefighter, there was no doubt that what we did made a difference. You tangibly saw it every day. But when you're doing something like podcasting, you know, we got this recorder sitting in front of us. Is that making a difference for someone? It's tough to sit there and think, you know, we met up here, arranged to do this, and you're going to put forth the effort to put it out there for the world to hear. Who's going to listen to it? Who's going to be inspired by it? And what's going to drive you to do it again next week? Now, you've got quite a few episodes up yourself, so you know that this is this is a process. It's ongoing, and, and, and you just keep doing it. You follow your heart. You follow that internal drive, which, that remember, that little negative self-doubt on your shoulders is always trying to beat that into submission hmm. you know as, as I talk with people that are employed they work for someone and they want to be self-employed they want to be their own boss they want to you know break away from being under the confines of the direction of someone else and they're just so full of fear and so full of self-doubt and so full of I'm gonna fail and it's never gonna work and and I just say look that you know that was me when I was working for 30 years I would always be able to go to a certain little mailbox in the place I worked and pull this little certain envelope out and take my file and open it up and in there was the lettuce, a paycheck. And no matter whether I had a very productive week or a very terrible unproductive week, the lettuce was always in that envelope. Well, now that I'm self-employed, the lettuce only comes in based on how hard and how smart I choose to work. So fear has driven my success. The fear of failing. The fear of not being able to provide for my family. The fear of not feeling, the fear of feeling that I'm going to leave this world and not have made it a better place. It inspired somebody to be better themselves. And I can't stop that fear. But I have learned to compel it in a very positive way to drive me to my goals. Hmm. Some people cower in their fear. I'm inspired 
by my fear because I'm not going to let those things happen to me. The thought of having pod feed and not podcasting anymore scares me to death because I know it can. At any at any week I choose not to turn that microphone on and put that episode out on Tuesday, that could be the beginning of the end of me being a podcaster. Yeah, that drives me to say, I don't care what that fear is or what that voice on my shoulder is telling me. I'm putting an episode out this week because the thought of not doing it scares the hell out of me. Because out there, someone's depending on me to share a lesson this week. And I'm not going to let them down. To speak on working for yourself in today's climate, or at least our American culture, there's this sort of glorification around working for yourself, not clocking in someplace. But it is a lot more difficult than, than it can seem. However, it's still not impossible. You definitely show that. And it's something that does attract me and many people out there. Mm-hmm. In terms of, uh, of keeping yourself honest and keeping yourself focused, what have you found that works for you? Well, first of all, if someone out there is listening saying, you know, should I work for someone else or should I work for myself? Before you get to that, figure out what it is you want to do. And then you can figure out if I can do this for myself or I have to be employed by someone else to do this successfully, at least maybe to learn and get, you know, get that expert ability, expert knowledge, and then I can break away from working for someone else and, and then work for myself. But starting with something from scratch without having a level of experience of whatever your expertise area is and then how to run the business side of that can be very dangerous because there's too many big holes to fall into that can end it for you. So there's nothing wrong with initially starting out and being tied to an employer and learning along the way the processes of how to run a business, how to have customer service, how to work as a team, all these things that you can get while you're being someone else's employee. There's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, you can learn it yourself, too. I think it's just a harder pathway unless you're a real student of those types of topics and easily self-taught and learn it. Being employed by someone else is not necessarily starting out a bad thing. Now as far as getting self-employed, what I will tell you is this, when I made that transition of 30 years of working for someone else to working for me, oh my god was that scary. Hmm. Because now everything is based on my ability to be successful and bring home a paycheck that feeds the family consistently. And I was responsible for the business and the marketing and the sales and the collections and legal issues. There was no one else to do any of that for me. And I had to figure out how to do all that for myself. Hmm. Even though I'd worked for 30 years, it was always for someone else. And there was all these other people who had all these other expertise or my go-to resources in in the places that I worked. And now I'm like the everything rolled into one person. And I had to figure out how to do it. Now, here's what I'll say. It was really scary, but I figured it out. And now, Chance, now I'm absolutely, without a question, unemployable. I could never work for someone again, ever, ever. Because now that I know how to earn a living for myself, I will never go back to having a boss again. If my situation awareness matters business collapsed tomorrow, I know how to start up a business. Wow. And I would start up something else, 
and find a new inspiration and take the pathway to success that I know how to do now, that I didn't know then. It was a lot of trial and error and mistakes and learning then. But I get solicited for jobs. You know, this place needs you. No, they don't. They don't want me. They don't want me because they wouldn't like how I behaved. Because when you don't need to work for someone, you behave with reckless abandon and say things that you don't care what anybody thinks about. Fire me. I don't care. You know, so I just, I just, yeah, it's so liberating, you know. And when I used to teach my classes early on, I used to think, I used to be worried about what other people thought of me. One of the number one fears that people have is fear of public speaking. People are afraid of public speaking because they're afraid of the failure, the embarrassment, the consequence, the ridicule, what people are going to think of us. Am I going to mess up? Am I going to make a mistake? And early on in my speaking career, I was always very conscientious about how are they judging me? Am I saying the things that they want to hear? Are they going to like me? Are they going to give me good evaluations? I don't do that anymore. Now I say what I think is the truth that they need to hear. Now, I'll do it in a kind and friendly way. I'm not out there to be mean-spirited to anybody. But if it needs to be said, I'll say it. You know, like, for example, I had a guy in a program who I called on to answer a question. And in the course of that discussion, I said, have you been, uh, you know, he was on a fire department. I said, have you been on long? And he says, yeah, 29, 29 years, seven months, three days. Um, four hours and two and a half minutes. In other words, he's you know on the countdown clock to when he can leave the misery of his employment. And he was sending that message to everybody in the room. So when he got done saying that, I said, you know what the funny thing is? Everybody in this room, they have the same countdown clock waiting for you to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, the and then they all laughed, and then he got all you know hurt <laughs> up about it. And it's it's the truth, mm-hmm. and it needed to be said because he thought he was. You know, making a statement, and I just turned the mirror back onto him and said, "Look, you're miserable. You want to leave? They're all miserable because they want you to leave too. Hmm. The sooner you go, the happier they'll be." And everybody else in the room was just beaming because I said what they were all thinking. Yeah. But you know, he started it. You know, with this smart comment. So now what I do is I just I just say what needs to be said, teach people what they need to learn, try to do it in a friendly way with a little bit of humor. And in the end, this is going to sound terrible. Like if they do evaluations, like maybe sometimes I don't, I don't pass out evaluations, but sometimes the program host will pass out the evaluations and they'll fill them out and then they'll gather them up and they'll give them to me and say, here's the evaluations if you're interested. I drop them in the trash on my way out of the building. I'm not interested in the evaluations. Now, back when I was a newer speaker, I could have really benefited and I did benefit from some of the feedback that was given to me on evaluations, but I'm now polished in my craft enough that I don't, I don't need to see them. You know, the ones that say you're good and you did this good, I already know that. And the, 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 the really bad ones are the ones when your message gets so close to them and so close to their deep fears and, and their worries and you, and you just, you know, you cut right into it and they get mad, they give it to you on the evaluation. And they just lay out that vomit on that on that evaluation, <laughs> and they say the most mean, and because they they think you hurt me, I'm getting even with you. I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to say these mean things. And I was like, okay, Doesn't goes in matter. the trash. Yeah, <laughs> said what I needed yeah, to say. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not going to read your vomit. I'm not going to be drawn into the negativity because you're a miserable person. You were ordered to be at this session. Hmm. You sat there pouty and mad all day and just couldn't wait till the end to tell everybody how much you hated it. 
and they lay an evaluation in front of them. Yeah. You know, rate yeah, it yeah. one to ten. Ten's great. One, one, one. Yeah, one program once early when I was early on, I used to read them. You know, it was one to ten. The person put zero, put a new column, zeros. You know, and obviously the person didn't want to be there. And, and as a speaker, you know your message isn't going to inspire everyone. You give me an open mind and somebody willing to learn and want to do what they do in a safer way, and I can fill their mind full of great ideas. Yeah. You give me somebody who's closed-minded, it's, it's got seven locks on it. I'm not there to pick the locks and open up that closed-minded person. That, that's someone else's science project. That's not mine. You know, you you open their mind up, bring them to me, and I, and I'll and I'll help them look at their work in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that being said, the uh, the occasional sticklers aside, there has been an awful lot of receptivity because you have taught all across this country. Yeah. You're frequently on the road. Yeah. UK, I I read Australia, yeah. Yeah. Hong Kong. You've yeah. Been, you've been all over the place. Yeah. What is it? Do you think that appeals to? These different audiences so much, and I, I would also pair that question with how exactly you get in touch with different locations, how you've yeah. branched out. So I, th I think what inspires them to the message is when workers, when they have a, a, a near miss event, no one gets hurt or killed. For some place, still very concerning. We had this, you know, this near miss event accident, and then there's somewhere there are injuries. And then there's somewhere there are fatalities. Hmm. And I think really what inspires people to bring me in is they don't want to be part of the injury and fatality equation. Yeah. They maybe they're having their near misses, but they want to they want to stop that because near misses are just precursors. They're just they're just the the warning signs for the for the next level of catastrophe to occur. Oh, that's scary. And enough, enough of those near misses occur, and you know you're going to end up having an injury event, or enough injury events occur, you're going to end up having a fatality event, mm -hmm. and 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 I I think they're inspired by saying we don't want that to happen but we don't completely understand why it's happening or how it's happening you know like this work i did for the navy they had a, a group come in and kind of do an audit and this group pointed out all these mistakes but the people i'm working with don't understand why those mistakes are happening hmm. so i'm able to help them to understand the the human error the human factor of why the why behind the why almost of things occurring and then the light bulbs you know come on for them uh, how do people find me? Initially, it was all just word of mouth. I do a program. People in the program would tell other people who tell other people. I wrote a lot in journals, and then that got the word out. I wrote six books on uh, situational awareness and high risk decision making. Six. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, or a lot to share on it, you know. And then uh, and then the podcast, you know, the, the audience from the podcast. And then I'm pretty prolific on social media. Hmm. You know, I, I have a Facebook page. I'm on LinkedIn. I got two Twitter accounts that have about 18,000, you know, followers there. And I'm always putting out messages, you know, little snippet of of messages, little things to think about, little inspirations. And I, when I podcast, I you know post the episodes on social media. Hmm. I also write a blog. I write an article on my website every Friday, and then a newsletter once a month that goes to a subscriber hmm. list. For so long as somebody can keep their stomach to deal with me, I'm going to give them lessons to the point that they can tolerate it. Yeah. You know, and I tell, I tell them, just consume it at the pace that you're comfortable. I have an online academy, so if people can't take my live event, I now have a way for them to go and do it virtually at their own computer, at their own mm. pace, you know, and, and that's 22 hours of content, you know. So I didn't want to give them like one hour and tease them 
you know, to go buy books or go come to a program. They get the academy. They they get it all. Everything yeah, they need to know yeah. about situational awareness from A to Z. I didn't hold anything back. All these channels, you know, the blog, the podcast, books, videos, live events, social media, being guests on other people's podcasts have all just kind of created a, a momentum mm. around the topic. Mm. And... Uh, I, I do know I do no cold calling for programs whatsoever. Like if you were to say to me, Rich, I know uh, I, I was just in Seattle. I know you were in Seattle. I was just in Seattle and I met somebody who might want to have your program. Here's their business card. I would never call them. I don't do that. Why not? Uh, because if they don't know me and they don't know my message, then I feel like I'm trying to sell aluminum siding to somebody who's got a brick house. I don't like those kind of telemarketer calls you know I don't like to be on the receiving end and I'm sure they don't like to be on the receiving end so what I would say is chance if you know them when you obviously you do just tell them my website and have them swing by and see if they see there's anything on there that they like Hmm. and then if they do like it just click the contact me tab on the website and that'll send me an email and and that'll start a conversation with them which you know I might just turn them onto a bunch of free resources or it might end up turning into business for me I don't worry about money because somebody taught me a long time ago, if you do what you love, the money will find you. Hmm. And it has. You know, and, and, and for those who are in doing what they're doing, driven by money, they're miserable people. The passion is not in the heart. The passion's in their wallet. And I always joke with my wife that I said, I wish I could win the Powerball, although I'd have to play it first, but I I wish I could win the Powerball because if I did not have to worry about means, I would literally go to places and say, look, if you need my message, I'll I'll come and do it for free. But I'm not there, you know, so I do have four kids, two in college, one finished and one to go. So, you know, I have have those obligations, you know, uh, but I don't worry about it. Because I know that as long as I keep pushing the message that is passionately in my heart, that everything works out for me. And it has. And some might call that foolishness. Some might call it faith. Some might call it luck. I, I don't call it any of that. I just call it following my heart. And, I, and that's, that's what I'm doing. Who was it that told you that if you do what you love if you follow your heart money will follow I don't have any direct memory of where that lesson somewhere. came from somewhere might have been listening to a podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it came to me years ago and I always that it, it stuck with me hmm. follow your heart hmm. believe in yourself and that helps me with that little self-doubt you know person on my shoulder too hmm. is you know what part, part of what helps me to keep that aspect into check is to know that I may not understand a direct connection between what I'm doing today with what it'll mean tomorrow or next week or next month, but my heart says I'm supposed to do this. My heart told me I'm supposed to come and sit with you. I'm supposed to be here to help you do something. I don't know exactly yet what, but I do know this, that in the process of helping you and being a guest on your show, something will come back to me from that. Yeah. That kind of karma exists, and it exists in my life and yours as well. Something will happen. Someone will call me up and say, I listened to your, to your interview on Chance's podcast a year ago. I meant to call you, but I didn't, and now I'm just getting around to it. 
It's amazing. Like, for example, I drive a lot to my programs, and sometimes those drives are six or eight or ten hours long. Mm -hmm. So before I leave, I'll send out a message on my social media that says, I'm going to be driving for the next eight hours. Anybody want to talk? Send me your information. Send you know, private message me your phone number. That's a great idea. And then, and then I'll you know I'll stop at a, a, to get a cup of coffee or stop to go to the bathroom or whatever. And I'll look at my phone and I'll write down three or four or five phone numbers of people that want to talk to me. Most of them I don't even know. Yeah. They just wanted somebody to talk to, and they're connected with me on social media. And I'll call them. And some of them I'll talk to for an hour and a half, two hours, which if you're driving for 10 hours, you know, that makes that two hours go pretty quick. It's like oh, having sure somebody does. in the car with you, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we'll just carry on a conversation and, you know, they'll thank me. And then a year later, they'll contact me and say, I don't know if you remember me or not, but we had a conversation when you were driving somewhere. And, I'm, and I, most of the time I remember at least, I might not remember their name, but I remember the context of what we talked about Definitely. oh yeah and they were like well we're just getting around to where we're going to um, hire somebody to come in and talk to our department about leadership is that something you'd be interested in now I, do, I didn't put that out that I wanted to I, selfishly I just wanted to not drive in the car for eight hours <laughs> quietly on my own and look at cows you know but I, I think what's in my heart is how can I productively use that eight hours in a way that will help someone else get what they need? Hmm. And if I can find a way to do that, that's a very productive use of my time. Hmm. And it's not just uh, the misery of driving 10 hours from point A to point B. Sometimes I run my def- destination, I'm, I'm excited. Man, I, I talked to five people today. We got a, I, I sometimes wish chance that I would record them could record them and turn them into podcasts because it'd be like some really great conversations. Yeah, yeah. But I try to hold, you know, what I talk with them in confidence because a lot of times they're having problems with coworkers or bosses and, you know, they just need an independent person from outside their sphere who doesn't know the relationships or doesn't know the, the you know, the, the baggage of the people and just give them some just straight up solid advice about how to maneuver through it. Yeah, but, yeah so... I don't even remember where the question started, but more more from you in the direction of driving down the highway. But perfect, I love it. In there, you mentioned leadership. I would like to dig into that a bit. Okay. I, I remember hearing you joined the fire service at eighteen. Yeah. There was a fire in your own home. Yeah, that's right. And you said that only two years later you were promoted to lieutenant. That's right. And then throughout your career, you held positions of assistant chief, chief across yeah. a number of different stations. Yeah. Can you give me some uh, highlights from those time periods, both what you learned from predecessors before stepping into those roles of leadership and, yeah. uh, and what you took away from, yeah, sure. from those roles? Uh, first, I give you a lot of credit for doing your homework because not a lot of people know that backstory about me. So that tells me you dug around and you did some homework and you know that backstory. So I give you a lot of credit, Do what for, I can. Give you a lot of credit for that. Um, so I, I started at 18. I got promoted uh, at 20 years old to be a lieutenant. And the way that happened was it was a volunteer fire department, and they they had what uh, they had they elected their officers. Hmm. And the night they had the elections, I wasn't there. So somebody nominated me, and then they elected me into this leadership role. If I was there, I would have just flat out turned it down. <laughs> but I I was at work, and I and I missed the meeting. And there I was. I was promoted. And uh, I was scared to death because I didn't really know how to do that job. And no, there was no pre-training 
on how to do that job. I had to learn on the fly, and I made so many leadership mistakes because I didn't know how. I didn't have people skills. I didn't know how to how to um, sell ideas. I mean, I was like, tell you know, the demanding kind of person, and you know, twenty years old. Some of these people I'm demanding stuff from are twice my age and twice yeah. my experience, and you know, and, and they they a lot of times put me in my place. You know, pounded me down and. And uh, to, to cut in quickly, yeah. how, how did you get that nomination in the first place at such a young age? Probably somebody did it as a joke. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> no, I never even found out who nominated me because I would have probably went and and uh, socked him in the eyeball wow. or something. Uh, I, I don't know. I, it, it just happened. I, I you know, I for those, for those first two years, I was I was very passionate about being a firefighter. Was going to a lot of schools, learning a lot of things about firefighting, not about being a leader of people. <laughs> Very different skill sets. <laughs> the fire never talks back. <laughs> people talk back. You, know, you, oh, you, never have to, you don't ever have to convince the fire to behave a certain way. You can extinguish it, but you know, when you bring in the human element, it's very, very different. And that's the part I didn't know is the human element. And so. Over the course of time, I decided I needed to become a student of learning the human element. And uh, so, you know, my formal education, I um, got a bachelor's in business. I got an MBA. And, uh, you know, that helped me develop some, at least, formal education and leadership. But there were still a lot of missing components about actually how to lead people in the moment. The, the formal process was not, it was incomplete, I will say. And it wasn't that a bad score or anything. I think almost all colleges and professors um, don't do a great job of teaching how to deal with people because a lot of those professors have never worked in the real world. They've worked in academia, not in a factory, not on a fire ground, not face-to-face -face with employees they have to see every day and supervise every day. They know a lot about the theory of it, and they are good at teaching the theory of it, but the practical reality of it is that theory doesn't necessarily align so well in the messiness of real human behavior in the moment of dealing with problems. Yeah. So over the course of time I became a, a pretty good student of paying attention to the best practices and the worst practices and tried to, you know, kind of keep my catalog of, you know, as I want if I want to be a good leader I need to do these things, I need to not do these things. And, uh, and then when I you know, got to the top of the organization, I found myself, sadly, doing the same thing that had happened to me earlier in my career. I was promoting people who weren't ready, that I had not properly prepared for their leadership positions. And then I would get frustrated and angry at them when they didn't do a good job in their leadership roles. And all the while, it was my fault. You know, Maybe they passed the test. Maybe they studied the books. When I gave the test, they scored the highest on the test. But that doesn't necessarily mean they know anything about the human behavior of individuals or teams or culture, how to inspire and move people forward. You know, great at taking the test, scored the highest, but it didn't always equate to good leadership performance. When I left active service, I created a leadership program for first-line supervisors to teach them not the theory, not the textbook, the practicality of how to lead people in the moment. Mm -hmm. Communication skills, teamwork, conflict resolution, accountability, uh, performance coaching. Again, not theory. How do you literally 
deal with the people who are not the totally committed best performers. You, you, you get a high performing person who's mature, you, all you have to do as a leader is stay out of their way. Hmm. Just stay out of their way and let them do the great work that they know how to do. Interesting. It's trying to inspire those who are not inspired and figuring out why aren't they inspired and what can I do to inspire them to want to do at least the minimum and hopefully beyond the minimum. One of the things I say in my leadership program is, is that when you have a problem with an employee or a coworker, it's because that person is not acting like an adult. They're acting childish. They're pouting. They're undermining. They're doing all the things that you would see children do. In fact, I, when somebody says to me, well, what should I, st- I want to be, a, I want to go into leadership. What should I study? And I say, study child psychology. Hmm. Because if you can understand the psychology of what makes children behave the way they do, then when you get in the workplace, you'll understand why the adults behave the way they do. The adults, the misbehaving adults, are just children trapped in adult bodies. (laughs) They are, and they don't know, for whatever reason, I don't want to blame the parenting, um, although there might be some element of it, they don't know how to play well, be part of a team, how to effectively resolve conflict without creating conflict, how to bring accountability, all these skills, and then they get into their grown-up bodies and they still misbehave and act like they act like children. Yeah. You know, and then there's the people in the leadership roles trying to bring performance to a, a group of children. Not always a group, sometimes just an individual. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's a whole team of high performing, and then one one standout underperformer who's misbehaving, who you know has you know a chip on their shoulder or has something that is affecting their ability to perform well. Maybe it's home issues, you know, um, and, and trying to help them through some of the challenges that they're dealing with, things that happen off the job that they're inadvertently bringing on to the job. My penance for my years of underdeveloping my frontline and mid-level leadership in my organizations was to create a program that teaches those skills that supervisors need to know. And I'm very inspired. You talk about like, you know, the light bulb comes on and they see the same thing happens in, in a program like that. They're like, oh man, I never knew how to deal with that. I was, literally, they were throwing gasoline on a fire and thinking that was going to put it out. And it just made it worse. Obviously, but, but they didn't. They didn't know that they were going to make it worse. You know, they come up with a idea as to what was going to solve it, and there they was. They made it worse instead of better. So I give them some some solid best practice advice. That's what I do when I'm driving in the car too. You know, just like mini classes as I'm driving down the road of how not to throw gasoline on your fires how, and, and how to prevent your fires from starting and how to put them out when they're small. It's almost like being a firefighter. Only those fires are the ones that are happening you know, in the office or in the work environment, not necessarily you know, like literal, literal fires on the street. But it's very similar. You know, fire, a firefighter's primary objective, prevent fires. Next, next objective to that is if a fire is going to start, get it put out while it's small. And because as the fire gets bigger, we have to throw many more resources. It costs so much more money, and it's going to cause so much more damage. Same thing with dealing with leadership problems. Prevent the problem. Extinguish the problem when it's small. Because if it grows, and we just turn our head and let it grow, it 
probably isn't going to solve itself. That's some excellent advice. It, it really harkens to that old saying, what is it, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure? A pound of, pound of cure, yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. So being respectful of your time here and wrapping up with some rapid-fire questions, I would like to hear a little about situational awareness, just cultivating it in daily life, mm-hmm. because often we get stuck in routines or complacency. Mm-hmm. So uh, for first responders and also any young entrepreneurs, how can they bring more awareness to their daily activities and work? One would be to become a student as to how things go wrong. Instead of trying to learn all your original mistakes yourself, learn on a deep level how other people have made mistakes, how it happened. Sometimes when you look at a case study, you'll look at a case study and you'll, you can see it coming. You can see this is not going to end well. For some reason they can't, they can't see it. And they're riding this train to the end of the tracks, and the tracks end, and there's going to be a terrible crash at the end, but they can't see it unfolding. So if you become a student of how these proverbial crashes happen, you can see some of the precursors, some of the indicators, some of the signs and symptoms and clues and cues that are building to this crescendo of a terrible outcome. Now, we have the benefit of the of hindsight bias when we're doing that because we already know the outcome. We know the train's going to run off at the end of the tracks. Yeah. So we have a little bit of a benefit that they didn't have at the time that gives us a diff- more perspective. But the more we can immerse ourselves in learning from the mistakes of other people, like when I'm working with first responders, with firefighters, I say, study line-of-duty death reports. Hmm. And every one of those line-of-duty death reports are all the things that led up to it coming learn those things that were along the way so when you're in the environment and those things are happening that now becomes a clue oh wait a minute this happened at that event which led to that person getting killed i have a red flag flying because i now see this clue and if they've never read that report that clue might have might have been a soft gentle clue that just passed right on by them and they didn't even recognize it. They might have just completely dismissed it as a coincidence. Oh, coincidentally, this just happened. Oh, that's interesting. And and just keep, keep on going. Where if they see how this little clue piled on with this little clue and piled on with this little clue, you know, as I talk about catastrophe events, I talk about having a wooden cart and every one of these little clues or indicators is a brick that goes on the cart. And you just take all these little things, all these little problems, all little bricks on the cart. Well, eventually that one brick that we put on the cart is going to make the cart collapse. Hmm. And everybody always wants to look at that single brick that made the cart collapse as the cause. No, that was just the last brick. Look at all these other bricks. Look at all these other contributing factors and causation leading up. They want to look at just the sharp end of that person made a bad decision when they chose to set that brick on that cart. Hmm. What about all the other bricks? We had the wheels of the cart wobbling, waiting for that last one to just make it collapse. You have to see those other bricks in time. That's part of the situation where I've seen the bad things in time to prevent a bad outcome. If you look at all the bricks on the ground after the fact, too late, the catastrophe has occurred. You want to see the bricks as they're being laid on the cart so you can see that the cart is in the process of getting overloaded and heading in the direction of the collapse so that you can prevent the collapse. 
make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? <laughs> well, I happen to have two 20-year-olds. <laughs> uh, well, actually, yeah, actually, they're 22 now. I have a 25-year-old 20, twin, 22-year-olds, and a 16-year-old. So we're right in that range. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, right yeah, yeah. When I look at you, I, I see, I see my own, uh, my my own children. Uh, only I don't think they're quite as dialed in and, and focused on on life as you are. Everything so, in its own time. Yeah, right. right. I, I hope, <laughs> I hope, chance. So to the, to the 20-year-old version of myself. What I would say is find the people who are successful but who have a lot of scars. Scars? Scars. Not necessarily physical scars, <laughs> but the scars from failing. Yeah. The scars. You. Some people find the path of success without any resistance. Maybe it's because of luck or moons and stars lined up and, you know, um, and and there they are at this very successful point, but they didn't. They didn't endure a lot of pain, a lot of loss, a lot of agony, a lot of failure. You're not going to learn as much from them hmm. as you attach yourself to those who appear to be making themselves very successful. But if you looked at the backstory, hmm. you would see this long path of struggle and lessons and mistakes and regrets and the, oh, I wish I would have done this instead of this. Just attach yourself to what those people are willing to share with you. Because what they're going to do is they're going to build, they're going to help you build a pathway to success that avoids all those undesirable turns that they took and all the, you know, all those mistakes. Don't, don't fall in the same holes and make the same mistakes they did. Attach yourself to those people who are either very successful or on their way to being very successful, who have endured a lot of failure along the way and and they're out there if they're willing to talk about it in fact some of the best ones are so willing to talk about you know learn from all these things i did wrong not this one thing at the end here that, that i you know just because i discovered the one great widget now and i'm having success let's talk about the 30 other widgets i made that all failed miserably and and all the consequence that came to me financially spiritually emotionally you know those people who have those scars can teach you so much and don't ever hesitate to ask them hmm. if their heart is in the right place they want others not to experience that pain that they have gone through who else companies or organizations uh friends of yours, acquaintances, are you impressed by? Who is doing good work within your community these days? There are certain fire departments that I am very inspired to see what they're doing. There's some that scare me to death, and I won't name either by name. Some organizations that I go into, I go into organizations, they bring me in because they're afraid that someone's going to get hurt or killed hmm. and they don't want it to happen hmm. some bring me in to try to show off how good they think they are they scare me they're not as good as they think they are because they've been lucky they haven't had the catastrophe but they've got all the bricks on the cart i can see them and it's like oh man just two more bricks you're gonna have a you're gonna have a mess here so there are there are certain agencies that that as i go in and i try to spend some time getting to know them beyond just the classroom. Certain companies that are very inspired to do it right. Certain parts of the military 
are very inspired to do things with a high degree of safety and accuracy. And I'm not going to name any good or bad by name because sure. if they're my client, um, I would not want to. I would not want to say who they are without yeah. their permission of oh, saying yeah. who they are. But it very much stands out to me those who set the bar very high and are never satisfied. If they ever reach it, they would just set the bar a little bit higher. They're always striving for continual self improvement. And I see some that have become very complacent, very lazy, very, well, we've never gotten anybody killed, so really, why, why do we need to have training on this topic of how not to get killed? Look, I've got all my fingers, all my toes, you know, I've never had a close call. And these people, they, they get to the point, Chance, where they confuse luck with skill. And that's a very dangerous place to be in your mindset because they think they haven't had a bad outcome because of how skilled they are. And then I come in and I observe and I see luck. And I think, oh my God, you think it's skill? It's only a luck and it's only a matter of time before that last two bricks get put on your cart and you're going to have a really bad day. I can see these things. Not that I have any special skill, but when I or others come in from the outside, we can see things that the people are so close to the problems can't see. I can see a flawed culture. I can see poor leadership. I can see employees who have become complacent or overconfident or who are situationally unaware of what's happening around them. It screams at me. They don't always see it. Some are very inspired to be shown and fix it. And some would just rather just host a class so they can just tick off on their training records that they hosted a class. Almost like we're, we're doing this to prevent liability so if something goes wrong we can at least come back and say we hosted a class. You know, it's not our fault that somebody made a mistake and got somebody killed. Look, we did a class. We brought in this guy. You know, and, and to me it, it totally stands out as to the inspiration and the mindset of, of those very driven organizations to be their best or those who want to be better but don't know how to get there but their heart's in the right place that they want to be better that they want to be safer and and then those that are on the other end of the spectrum that are just um, absolutely clueless and their culture is broken and no amount of anything that I'm going to teach in a day is going to fix their broken culture you know that to, to fix the broken culture it took them generations, decades, for that culture to erode to what it is. To think I or anyone is going to come in and one day raw raw, which I don't do raw raw. I'm, I'm about you know teaching the neuroscience. Not I'm not the uh, you know the Tony Robbins motivational speaker that are going to get everybody <laughs> running out of the room with their fists over their heads. Going, Ooh, you know that's that's not what I that's not how I teach leadership. But. Um, to think that anybody's going to come into those organizations with those completely broken cultures and fix it in one sitting, one session, they're delusional. And I see them. I see them. They, they think I'm going to bring the cure to their ills. You know, I'm going to come in and one day the whole organization is going to be turned about and be doing things safer from that day forward to evermore without anybody continuing to reinforce the lessons. You know, it, it takes time and development of habits and routines toward best practices to change behavior that changes a culture. Hmm. Not one day of 
of learning. Definitely. Yeah. That can be the, the catalyst, but it is the work that comes yeah. after. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The easiest part for them is to sit and listen to me and take pages of notes. Mm -hmm. The hardest part, whether that's a leadership class or a situational awareness class, the hardest part is taking what they've learned and turning it into action. Yeah. Like the day after I leave, did you do anything differently than you did the day before I came? If the answer is no, it didn't stick. Now, it doesn't mean you give up. You know, you can still, you know, it's like a person who decides they're going to uh, lose weight. If they go to, a, they go to a, a motivational speaker on how to lose weight on Monday, they're not going to lose 40 pounds by Friday. It's a process over time of changing habits, old habits, developing new habits, and turning them into a, a lifestyle of eating better, exercising, drinking more water, all the best practices that over time then leads to a f more fit person. The same thing with those best practices that over time helps a culture strengthen not any one event. Yeah. yeah. Integration and application. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, yeah. there's a no shortage of resources, but yeah. if people are looking to find you, where do you want to send them? Yeah. If they're, if they're looking to find me, if they want to learn more about situational awareness, they can go. I have a website that has the, the blog and the podcasts and the academy and books and those resources. That would be SA Matters, SA for situational awareness, samatters.com, real easy. If they want to learn more about me as a speaker, then that website is richgassaway.com, and the spelling of Gasaway is 1S, G-A-S-A-W-A-Y, just like gas and away put together, Rich, richgassaway.com, and then they, they can see the topics that I speak on. And So one is, one is the educational website, and one is the speaker promotion or consultant promotion Website, so I you tend to send most of the people to the SA Matters website because I think most people are interested in just learning something about the topic hmm. and not so much learning about me, you know. But that other website's there if they're interested. We've got them both. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gasway, thanks for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. All right, that is a wrap. Head on over to samatters.com and learn more about Dr. Gasway's organization. Also be sure to check out the SA Matters radio podcast. You can find it on both iTunes and Stitcher. I have recently subscribed to it. There's a lot of useful information there in terms of effective decision making. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to Chance by Chance on iTunes. Also follow me on SoundCloud. That way new episodes will appear directly in your feed. If you want a more accessible route with some added bonuses head on over to chancebychance.com and sign up for the newsletter on the bottom of the homepage. That way you get all new episodes delivered directly to your inbox, along with some other special tidbits just for you. Big thanks to the Patreon patrons. If you would like to support Chance by Chance directly, if you've been making use of this podcast, head on over to the support page at chancebychance.com and that'll link you up with an opportunity to give to this project on a per-episode basis. Not asking for anything major, just a dollar here and there adds up quickly and helps me to dedicate more of my time and attention to this endeavor. Everyone, until next time, thank you for listening.